So last week, we started another sermon series called, So I'm a Christian, Now What? And uh, we, we looked at a concept, uh, first of all, that we said we need to take Jesus with us wherever we go, amen? And we discovered that through the, the story uh, that we often hear in our Sabbath school classes, Captain Naaman and his leprosy. And we brought out a little detail in that story that we often miss, where Captain Naaman asked to take dirt back home with him, because in those days it was believed that your gods only went as far as your borders. And Captain Naaman, after his conversion, didn't want to worship anyone else except the God of Israel. And so he took Israel's dirt, Israel's earth, home with him to worship God on that soil. And uh, there were some other really wonderfully innocent parts of that story as well, like uh, Naaman asks Elisha, is it okay, you know, the king asked me to help him go down into the, the, uh, the idol, the, the temple of his idol, and he's old, so I have to help him bend down and kneel down, and I just want God to know that when I help him kneel down and I sort of bow, it's not because I'm bowing to that idol, I, I just want God to know that, and Elisha says to him, go in peace, go in peace, but just that new believer spirit in him, wanting to please God, and and wanting to do whatever is right. It was just such a wonderful, innocent scene there. And that concept that he taught us, taking Jesus with us wherever we go, is, is vital. And we said it, it has to do with talking with him throughout the day, and thinking about him throughout the day, and praying for strangers, and just staying in touch with the Lord every moment of every day. And I want to take that up a notch this week. I want to talk about how to think like a Christian, or how to have the wisdom of Jesus. And what is biblical wisdom? And how do we truly take that next step of spiritual maturity and begin to navigate this confusing world? That's going to be the focus of our study this morning. And what we have to recognize is that the single most important event in all of earth's history was the resurrection. Usually when you hear Christians talk about Easter weekend, you hear a lot about, yeah, the resurrection, but Christians talk often about the cross. But what we need to recognize is that without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. Hmm. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at what Paul says about that. He addresses this very topic. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ have perished. They're just dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what he's saying here is that if, if Christ, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what are we doing? What's the point? If, if Jesus didn't rise, then, you know, I mean, God doesn't really have the power over death, and, and we really have no victory over our sins and to overcome the, the death that sin brings. Uh, he says, we're really, are we even really forgiven? Because the resurrection was part of the plan of salvation. And, and if Jesus isn't alive, then can we really even be forgiven? And so... He approaches this topic and he says, look, the cross, yes, but the resurrection even more. What the resurrection means to us is that we have a living Savior who can sympathize with us, who can advocate for us, who can give us victory, who can give us forgiveness and grace and mercy and joy and love. The resurrection means everything to us, amen? And That didn't sound too enthusiastic there. Amen. Thank you. It's so important. It's vital. It's the single most important event ever. Verse, uh, let's, I'm going to keep reading. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Oh, verse 20. But in, Christ, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. And he explains what he means. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He is the new man. 
He is what mankind can be and what God always intended us to be. Amen? That's such good news. Living and never dying. Representing and and embodying peace and love and justice and mercy and, and fairness and goodness and selflessness. He is what God is. He embodies God's character. So the resurrection of Jesus is, it's everything to us. And if it didn't happen, which by the way, there's a whole lot of evidence to believe that it did. Number one is the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. You can go to the Holy Land now and and look in there. He's not there. People say, well, maybe they they stole his body, like they said. They had legions of, a legion of uh, Roman soldiers around the the tomb that night. And if the Roman soldiers fell asleep, they knew that they would be killed. So the chances that the Roman soldiers actually fell asleep is, it's non-existent. We are also, we have to look at the lives of the apostles as well. And this is one of the biggest pieces of evidence that it's true to me, is the life of the apostles. And what I mean by that is, if you read through history and you see the death, how these apostles died, they, many of them died pretty horrible deaths. Some were boiled in tar, some were drawn and quartered. You know what drawn and cor- drawing and quartering is? It's where they would hook up a rope to a horse for one arm and another arm and two legs and pull you apart. Drawn and quartered. And uh, some were crucified upside down, some were whipped, some were stoned, some were just, they faced these horrible, painful deaths. And here's the thing, do you not one of them, not one of them said, you know what, we were just kidding, he didn't really rise. I mean, facing such a horrible and painful death, you would have thought at least one of these disciples, if it were a lie, you would have at least thought one of these disciples would have said, you know, forget what I said, we made the whole thing up. Why would they go through with such painful and horrible deaths and and people there facing such uh, pain and misery in the early church? That first generation of Christians was persecuted by the Jews and the Romans. And that first generation of Christians were the ones that would have seen and heard Jesus. They were alive while he was on earth, right? So if they didn't have enough evidence that he actually was alive, why would they have subjected themselves to such horrible and atrocious deaths and fates if it weren't true? They were willing to go through with it all and build up the Christian church, the world over, because they had seen something they were never even expecting. Nobody was expecting the Messiah to have to die. We're going to get to that here in just a second. Nobody was expecting his death, let alone that he would rise from the grave. Nobody was even considering that at all. Never entered their minds. And so Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first part of that harvest. It's a harvest. It's a farming term. The first blooms, the first blossoms of the fruit or the vegetation. He is the first of the resurrected. And also, He represents what's coming. What do I mean by that? He represents the new humanity. Do you want to be a new human in Jesus? Do you? I do. I sure do. You've heard me say it before. You know, since sin came in, we're not even really human. You ever thought about that? We're not even really true humans. We're something else. Sin came into the human race, and it began degrading our genes and our thought processes and our our ways and our brains and our feelings and and all of these things, and and we are a far cry from what God created in the beginning. What does Scripture tell us? What are the promises? Because the resurrected Christ, we can be as He is. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible says that He wants to write His law on our hearts. He wants to change our hearts. Um, We're also told that when He comes, this mortal body will put on an immortal body. Amen? So what God is essentially doing is giving us back our humanity. 
People say, oh, you know, following Jesus is too hard. It's, you know, it's too oppressive. I can't have any fun. And I say to them, that's because you don't even know what fun is. You don't know what love is. You don't know what passion is. You don't know what fairness and justice are because you aren't really a human. We become our true self and, and when we receive the life that comes flowing from Jesus and Calvary's cross and the resurrection, we begin to learn how to live life in a way that is it's at its fullest. That's why he says, my burden is light. And you know, the cross to bear. People say, well, Christianity is a cross to bear. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you know what the cross we have to bear is? You know what that is? He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It doesn't mean that the load of Christianity is heavy. The load is saying, I realize then I'm not truly what I'm supposed to be. And saying, so Lord, what I want and what I feel and what I think and my agenda gets set aside and Lord, you put on me what you want me to be and how you want me to live. And so the cross we have to bear is just simply saying, I'm going to deny myself and live the life that Jesus wants me to live through Him, through His power. I'm going to take on His life. So really, the cross is only ourselves. The cross we bear is only ourselves. And so, along those lines and how we're to live and how we're to navigate this world and understand it, I want to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 now. We're going to go back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I love this. I love this passage because it... You heard me say last week that... Uh, when we, when, we, when we encounter Jesus, we realize that common sense isn't very common. <laughs> we, we, we realize that when we think we're wise, we're really not very wise. Because what we're about to realize is that the ways of God and the way that what Jesus revealed to us is that when we think we've got things figured out, we have nothing figured out. So I want to read this with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. What does that mean, those who are perishing? Well, we said when sin entered the world, it automatically had an expiration date. It could only last just so long. Isn't that true? It only lasts just so long. And so those of us that haven't sort of aligned ourselves with real life, the life that Jesus gives us, are kind of going downhill with the rest of the world. You can see that in humanity, can't you? It's like this big snowball that just keeps rolling downhill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and people are allowing themselves to get caught up in it. You know what I mean? We just kind of get caught in the flow, and we become part of that giant steamrolling snowball rolling downhill. And so, verse 19 then says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, all the stuff that you think, the people that think that they're wise, they don't know anything. All the people that think they have good discernment realize that they're a bunch of airheads. Goes on, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is, the, where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Wow, how about that? And, and so we're, 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 we're following along with Paul's train of thought here and we're thinking... What do you mean, Paul? What are you getting at? We're, we're hearing you say that the world and its institutions and its governments and its way of thinking and, and the way that it operates is all messed up. It, it thinks it's wise. It thinks it's got things under control. But really, it is a mess. That's the train of thought that he's leading us on. But how do we know that's true? Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. Pick up on that theme. 
That is incredible. And that's what we've been talking about in our last sermon series as well. We talked about how the world is structured to continue the world, to preserve the world. Are you with me? You following that train of thought? The way the world is set up, the way that we are conditioned to think, our governments, our kingdoms, our, our ways, our economies are set up in order to preserve what we have. Isn't that true? And this is why Jesus was in such... He annoyed everybody. He annoyed the Jewish leaders. He annoyed the Romans because He was saying, look, you Romans... I don't stand for what you stand for. And you Jewish leaders, I don't stand for what you stand for. I stand for a different kingdom. He stuck out like a sore thumb. And and the fact that he stuck out like a sore thumb was offensive to the Romans and the Jews and everybody else around. And it goes on in verse... uh, 21, I want to read that again. For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The way the world thinks and operates makes us blind to God and His wisdom. Think about this. What does the world operate on? What does it run on? Tell me. Selfishness? Power and authority, money and greed, right? Politicians, kings, dictators. I mean, that, that's what we have. That's what, we're, that's what we're working with. That's what the world runs on. And yes, at, at, at its core, it's all selfishness. And so we have to look at that and say, would that train lead us to look at the face of Jesus. Or if we hopped on the train of the world and the way it's thinking and the way that it operates, what direction would it take us to? Would it take us to heaven or would it take us to somewhere else? Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, if we are trying to identify our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our our beliefs, finding our safety in the stuff of this world and the way this world is structured and ordered you have to realize that you will not be able to connect your mind with God. And so it goes on here. Verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And that's what Jesus was constantly doing. The the Jewish leaders were always saying to Jesus, "Well, what sign will you show us that you are Messiah or you are this or you are that? They wanted a sign, proof that he was somebody to listen to. And the Greeks seek wisdom. You see, their gods were all about a way of thinking and a way of thinking about the world and identifying with their ways. And, and the Greeks had all these different schools of the philosophers. They had you know, the Aristotles and the Socrates and the Platos. And people would sort of identify with those philosophers. So what they're looking for is, hey, God needs to make sense. We see a lot of that in the scientific world right now, don't we? You know, some of the numbers and things that they find in their tests and studies don't seem to add up with the biblical narrative. So the, the human uh, reaction automatically is to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay, the Bible must not be true. We do the same thing in the other direction. When science doesn't line up with what we know from the Bible, we automatically throw the baby out with the bathwater with science too. And that's no good. But the, the problem, what he's saying here is, look, if we are thinking according to the way this world operates, if we're thinking that, you know, the world is going to show us, the world is going to lead us and teach us about the selfless ways, the goodness and love of God, you're never going to see it. If you're thinking that the, the, the way that we think that this world will reveal to us the kingdom of God, we've got another thing coming. Not that there aren't pieces of God left here. It's just that we cannot rely on this world to be our instructor. We can't rely on our political party to be our instructor in righteousness. You hearing me? 
We can't allow uh, uh, the, our economy and the way... We, any experience in this world cannot be our instructor in heavenly things because it doesn't think and react and speak and teach according to the kingdom of God. Are you with me? It's contrary. Verse 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Does somebody know? Christ crucified being a stumbling block to the Jews. Why would that be? What did they want? What were they looking for? They wanted an earthly king. They wanted to be delivered from the Romans, didn't they? They wanted to set up their kingdom and it would last for an eternity and the Messiah would feed them and care for them and take care of them. That's, that's what they were wanting out of the Messiah. So along comes the Gospel, along comes Jesus, and He gives up His life after three and a half years. And they're saying, are you kidding me? You're, you want me to believe that he's the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come and be the deliverer to lead us out of from the oppression of the Romans and to lift us up and put us in our rightful place in this world. How can it be him if he's dead? And the same for the Greeks. Whether it was because it didn't line up with their philosophies or it didn't line up with their idea of what a Caesar or an emperor would be, the cross didn't make any sense to anybody. That's why, my friends, it's all the more likely that we should believe that it's true. Because if you are trying to build a case over time about how good and right and trustworthy and, and uh, uh, righteous and holy God is, as a human being, would you write that, okay, God showed us that He's this, by giving up his life? You understand what I'm asking you there? What I'm saying is, if you are trying to show that your God is the right God, that your God has the authority and he's the judge and he's the ruler and he's holy and righteous and in power and you better listen to his words, would you describe him as one who gave up his life? No, no human would write that. If you wanted people to pay attention to your God, it would be all about power and authority and miracles and wonder and, and riches and, and building up grand cities and all of these things. That's, that's what you would write. You wouldn't say the king came and you know what he did? He served sailors by washing their feet. He touched people who were the outcasts. He healed lepers. And he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. And then, after three and a half years, he allowed himself to be killed. That is not the story you would write. That's not the story anybody would write. It seems like foolishness, and that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, look, the message of the gospel seems like foolishness to the world. But that's just the point, isn't it? That's just the point. Because if Jesus had come and set up this metropolis and He had brought all these riches and all this power to, to a people, He'd be just like every other king and ruler, wouldn't He? That's what everybody's tried to do. Some have been more successful than others. He'd be just like another Nebuchadnezzar or another you know, Hitler, another, he'd just be like the rest of them. They might have been more caring and loving, but in the end, his intentions are the same. You see, the fact that he revealed his kingdom and God's character by giving up his life makes him stand apart from any other leader or king or emperor or wise man that has ever lived. You know, this is the interesting thing. You know that you can have Judaism without Moses and Abraham. You can have that religion without those two characters. You know that, right? 
And you can have Islam without Muhammad. That religion can still exist without him. Same with Buddha. There was Buddhism before the Buddha. And so Buddhism can exist without Buddha. But you know the one religion that cannot exist without its leader? It's Christianity. There is nothing left to Christianity if you have no Jesus. And the reason for that being is that he not only gave his life for his followers, but he represents the character and kingdom of God in fullness and truth in himself. In other words, what am I saying by that? I'm saying that Jesus is the, fu is the full proof that God is good and holy and righteous and wonderful and, and, and worth worshiping and He's selfless and He's, he's, he's worth our, uh, following Him and obeying Him. Jesus is the proof that God is who He says He is. And it didn't come through force. It didn't come through power. It didn't come through authority. It came through dying on a cross. God revealed the power of His kingdom when Jesus gave up His life. God revealed to us that His true intentions for mankind and, and what Eden was like and, and, and the communion that he, he wishes to have with us. God gave us that example and put it on full display in the person of Jesus and when He, when he hung on Calvary's cross. And nobody ever would, one, choose to write that story, and two, even think to believe it, because it makes no sense. How can the place of suffering also be his throne? But that's exactly what God did. Jesus was enthroned as king of the earth, king of creation, when he gave up his life. Because it revealed to all creation that God is just and God is good and God is loving and God is holy. And he will never leave us or forsake us. He took back the earth when he died and rose again. It's powerful, powerful truth. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and look at this, the wisdom of God. What word did I say? The wisdom of God. And what is the definition of the wisdom of God? Jesus. Most of the time when we think of wisdom, we think of a way of thinking. Wisdom is discernment, and wisdom is, you know, uh, you know the Proverbs, Right? Do you know what Scripture is telling us? Do you know what Paul is telling us? Jesus is the Proverbs. Wrap your head around that for a second. Should I say that again? Jesus is the Proverbs. He is the physical embodiment of all of the words of God. All of God's intentions, His purposes, His character, His will, everything He's ever wanted for us, everything He's ever wanted for the, for, the, for the universe, He showed us in Jesus Christ. You want to know if God is wise? Don't try to come up with a great argument. Just look at Jesus. You want to know if God is just? Don't try to come up with this grand argument. Just look at Jesus. Didn't He say the same thing to us? When you've seen me... You've seen the Father. Paul says the same thing, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we went around this uh, sanctuary here today and I asked everybody to draw a picture of what you think God looks like, we'd probably have a different picture for every person that drew one, wouldn't we? And really, if we think about it, we think, oh, but that's what God means to me, but that's the problem, isn't it? Because when we share our idea of what God is, that means that it's mixed with a whole bunch of stuff. It's mixed with our education and our background and our blessings and our trials and our, our thinking and, and you know, our IQ. All of that, it's all mixed into our picture of God. 
And so what Paul is telling us and what Jesus himself said is don't try to draw the picture on your own. Don't come up with that picture by yourself. Because when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we ask ourselves, what does God look like? Now, he's above anything we could ever comprehend. That's why he sent Jesus. What does God look like? He looks like Jesus. What does God talk like? He talks like Jesus. How does he act? He acts like Jesus. He, he came to clear up all the confusion, to clear up all the deception that's in the world. Jesus came to show us exactly what God is like and that God, God's wisdom, when he said, let there be light, when he formed the earth, when he put it all into motion and put it all together, Jesus, okay, this is a com complex concept, but I want you to grasp this. What do I hold in my hand? What is this called? the Bible, or the Word of God. Isn't that true? John calls Jesus the what? The Word of God, right? So what John is teaching us is that every time God has spoken, whatever you wanted to understand about whatever God has spoken, you can see in the person of Jesus Christ. So when God said, let there be light, what did that mean? Boy, something great. I can't grasp it, but if you want to know what he meant, look at Jesus. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. All of that. Everything God has ever said, everything he's ever wanted us to hear, we can see embodied in the person of Jesus. It's a, it's a powerful concept, and it's a wonderful concept because it frees us. It frees us from having to have an explanation for everything. Lord, why am I going through this? I don't understand what's happening to me. I don't, I don't understand what's going on in this world. I'm troubled by what I see around me. We as humans want to be able to have an explanation for everything. And do you know why we like to have an explanation? Because if we can explain it, we think we can control it. If I can figure out the who and the why and the when then I think that I can somehow affect it for my better good. And so what ends up happening? Well, when we can't figure it all out, we begin to say, does God care about me? You see, we equate our ability to understand everything with the love of God. But having Jesus as the example of who God is, do you know what it allows us to do? It allows us to say, I don't know why this is happening, but I know who God is. It allows us to have a deeper faith beyond our capacity to explain everything. Sometimes saying, I don't know, can save your soul. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why this is going on, but you know what? I know who God is because of Jesus. So I'm going to keep reading here, verse 25, verse 24. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, many times I've heard this verse read as if it's like God boasting of how wise he is and how intelligent he is and, and how strong he is. That's really not what this verse is saying. Because in the context here, what is the weakness of God that Paul's referring to? What is the weakness of God? Yes, you're, you're kind of on the right track, but let me ask you this question. Did Jesus come with full power and authority when he was born as a baby? He put himself in a position of absolute weakness, didn't he? Even to the point of giving up his life on the cross. And by putting himself at a point of absolute weakness, it showed us who God really was. And when it showed us who God really was, it made us say, 
I want to worship you and I want to love you my whole life and throughout all of eternity. It put God in a place of power by being completely weak and vulnerable. That's the weakness of God he's referring to. He had all the power of heaven. Jesus could have at any point called down angels and called down wrath. At any point. But he kept himself in the position of weakness to show who God really was. To stand in stark contrast to the world. And this, my friends, is why I spent so much time in my last sermon series talking about politics. Because politics and, and political parties and world leaders do not in any way resemble the wisdom of God. Do not in any way resemble Jesus Christ. Yet we find ourselves identifying with some leaders and things. Giving our allegiance and giving over our hope in them. And worldly institutions are designed to keep the world running. When Jesus said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. So we've got to be wiser, don't we? And, and how do we do that? And by the way, talking about this place of weakness, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to get a little controversial here for just a second. People have asked the question, you know, should I do certain things to keep others safe during this pandemic? Should I put a mask on? Should I inconvenience myself? Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus inconvenience his, himself to save you and me? Did he put himself in a position of weakness for you and me? So here's the thing. If you're militant one way or the other on this, if you're militant especially saying, I'm not willing to inconvenience myself for the safety of others, guess whose spirit you have in you? If Jesus Christ can, can inconvenience himself by putting on our flesh, I can inconvenience myself by putting on my mask. It, and, and, and folks that come with an agenda, think about this, my friends, any agenda, any agenda other than worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth is not a person coming to seek Christ. They're coming to push their own agenda. And that is not the kind of person we want in the church. We don't want agendas, personal agendas. We want Jesus Christ. And this comes along with wisdom. How do I know what the agenda of Christ is? How do I know what the agenda of the kingdom of God is? How do I know what, how, how, to, how to see the world properly for what it is? Well, here's the way that we do this. If Jesus is the wisdom of God, if Jesus is the representation of God that, that we're to see through, the lens that we're to see through, let's think about this for a minute. What should we do then? We should get to know Jesus so intimately, shouldn't we? So closely walking with Him, reading about Him, thinking about Him, talking to Him daily, that He becomes our vision. So that we look through Him, through Him, at everything else. It's almost like sometimes, you know, you see these uh, cyborg on TV you know, they have this vision where they're looking around and all of a sudden, beep, 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 that, that lights up, right? Because it matches up with what they're looking for. Well, Jesus is the same way with us. We look through Him at everything else, and while the world is full of stuff that doesn't resemble Him, if we're looking through Him, what we see in Him will match up in the world. Are you following me? In first service, I alluded it to, remember those transparencies, the overhead projector? Remember those? Those were cool. Especially when you could go up to the, to the front and write on them with the dry erase pen in school. And it was really neat when the, this is before projectors and things. So it was really neat when the teacher would have two transparencies that kind of resembled one another, and they'd put one down, and they'd put another one on top of it, and you could see the differences between the two, right? It's just like that with Jesus. God sent 
Jesus as his wisdom to be the lens that we look through or the transparency that we put down on top of what's here in the world so that we can notice the differences between him and his kingdom and his wisdom and what we have here. But you can't walk in wisdom and you can't walk in in truth and you can't walk with true vision unless you're looking through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's not blocking our vision. He just becomes a filter for our vision. And what I mean by that is not saying it's, it's do this and don't do that. Follow this and don't follow that. Do that and, and avoid this. It's not about the law. It's about expanding our minds to realize that this world is full of confusion. It's full of false powers. It's full of false agendas. It's full of selfishness. And, and putting on Jesus allows us to see the world like He sees it. Because if we get stuck in the do's and don'ts of our faith, we really aren't seeing things clearly, are we? We're really not. It's, it's, it's more of a really fundamental, almost childish way of our faith. And Paul actually talks about this. He says, when I first met you guys, I fed you milk. But I want you to transition to what? To meet infants, new believers, symbolically, drink milk. And in another place, he talks about the law or the teachings of God in the Old Testament being like a schoolmaster. And the schoolmaster was meant to teach them about deeper things. In another place, it talks about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And the letter of the law keeps us sort of behaving like the teacher posts the rules in the classroom, right? But it takes time and maturity to realize why the teacher wants you to behave that way. Isn't that true? It takes time and maturity to to realize why we're being asked what we're being asked and what areas and angles of our lives that our Christian faith involves. Because it's really easy to walk... You know, it's really not that hard to look at God's commandments and God's, God's will and say, okay, I did that and I can do that and I can do that. Must be I'm in really good shape. And I would say to you, oh, well, you might be following the letter of the law, but what about the spirit of the law? Do you know how you follow the spirit of the law or understand the spirit of the law? Put on the wisdom of God goggles. Put on the goggles of Jesus Christ and filter through him. And things begin to show up in different ways and we begin to see things more clearly and for what they really are. You want a biblical example of this? You know the book of Revelation? What's the actual title of the book of Revelation? What is it? Does anybody know? Come on. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Some Bibles say that it's the revelation of St. John. No. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 1 says that in the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So, as you read through Revelation, sometimes we're looking at that and going... um, How is this revealing Jesus? You know, the word revelation means the revealing, right? To reveal. Apocalypse means the same thing. It's a revealing. Well, how can a book that's full of beasts and marks and world powers and wars and all these things, how can that reveal Jesus? Well, the book of Revelation is meant to be understood through the lens of the rest of Scripture. Isn't that true? Now, the rest of Scripture, we have said, we find embodied in who? Jesus. All of what's... He's the Word of God, remember? The Word of God. So do you know what the book of Revelation does? Even though it seems like it's scary and it seems like it's about all these horrible atrocities, what the book of Revelation is, show, is, is doing is saying, look through the lens of Jesus. I want you to read the book of Revelation through the lens of Jesus, and you will easily be able to, to discern what, where God is and where God isn't. And as the world tumbles downward and spirals downward, Christians are supposed to go, oh yeah, the earth has an expir- expiration date. Oh yeah, as I'm looking at the world through the, the lens, through the goggles of Jesus, oh yeah, That's what's dying, and this is what's bringing me up to eternal life. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's what the plagues in Egypt were all about, weren't they? The plagues of Egypt? 
The plagues of Egypt were all, did you know this, were all uh, directed at one of the gods of the Egyptians. The Nile was a god. The locusts were a god. And so God directs these plagues at these gods in order to do what? In order to reach the heart of Pharaoh. As these gods betrayed Pharaoh, he was supposed to be directed to only one source of life but he hardened his heart against it. The same goes for us. And this is where we're going to close. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The cross, a dying Messiah or king, seems like foolishness. But yet, but yet, it's the way God proved that his kingdom was true and his character is right and just and good. But not only that, it goes on and it's beautiful. Did you catch that part where it said, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards? You know what he's saying? A lot of you folks aren't very educated. A lot of you people, you know, you you didn't sit at the feet of the greatest teachers. You're just regular people. Then he goes on and he says, um... Not many of you were born into a noble family, and that meant something to the Romans. You had to have a good pedigree, and you had to own land. And then it goes on, he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He's saying even in His followers... He chose the weak, the uneducated, people that didn't have a good family pedigree, tax collectors and fishermen, simple people, the lowest of the low. He has lifted up in heavenly places and made us kings and queens and priests. In those days it was believed if you were not a wealthy Jew, if you were not an obedient Jew, and if you were not a healthy Jew, God did not love you. You could not even go into the court of the temple. But here he's saying, yeah, all you people, you tax collectors, you prostitutes, you're uneducated, you're the one he's calling and lifting up. It's a message for everybody. It's a message for the oppressed and those that are down and out. And so he's chosen us, the meek and the mild, to see his wisdom, to walk in his truth, to walk with those goggles on, viewing the world through Jesus seeing everything so that we can see the things that match up and the things that don't. Which is, you know, why it's so puzzling that we get ourselves in in, in these debates following worldly leaders when worldly leaders clearly do not resemble Jesus. Nothing like Him, but yet we get caught up in it, don't we? We need to put those Jesus goggles on and say, wait a second, wait a second. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't match up. I can't, I, I can't be in on that. What we need to be in on in all four are the things that match up as we look around through the lens of Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God, the goodness of God, the, the righteousness and holiness of, of God we see in Jesus. He came to clear up all of our questions. And so we started last week by asking ourselves the question, How do we take Jesus with us everywhere we go? Well, we get to know him on a deep and intimate level. We spend time with him and know him better than anybody we've ever known. And then as we see him, we begin to look through the lens of our Savior. Because, Paul told us, we can't rely on our own sight. Can't rely on our own wisdom and discernment and and common sense. Our common sense is nonsense. 
All we know is this world and how this world tries to maintain itself. That's all we know. It's what we're conditioned to. But Paul's saying, look, put on the wisdom of God. Look at the world through Jesus, and we will begin to see the difference between the things of this world and our Savior. And that makes all the difference for us. You know what it also means? we got to learn some things. we got to unlearn some things. We may have more to unlearn than we'd have to learn. Think about that. Because a lot of our picture of God comes from what we've learned over the years. So we need to unlearn a whole lot of things in order to learn the most important things. So my challenge to you this week is to get to know Jesus more and more deeply and begin to see the world through the lens of Him. See what matches up and see what doesn't. And the things that match up, follow after with all of your heart. The things that don't, be willing to leave it behind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, we're humans that live in this human fallen world, and it becomes very difficult at times to navigate. We've seen from Scripture time and again that selfishness seems to motivate everything. It taints even how we view you. Lord, the world's full of confusion. It's full of false teaching. It's full of just selfishness. And Lord, we realize today that you have sent your wisdom, you have sent your goodness, your love, your truth in the form of a person, Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to seek to know nothing but him and him crucified. The resurrection is the most important event because he shows us what your intentions have always been for humanity. And so, Lord, may we begin to look at the world and see the world through the lens of our Savior so that we will see what represents life in your kingdom and what represents death in this world. Please, Lord, be able, help us to be able to sort it out and help us to know Christ more intimately every day so that we will not be tempted to follow after things that lead us to death, but only the things that lead us to life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.